what's going on, Dale? What's up? We're early. What do you want to do? Nothing legal, man. Let's get out of Hello and welcome, welcome and hello. This is Wait You Haven't Seen, and it's a show where we talk about movies, but one of a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 211, and my guest this week from I Love That Movie, it's Lisa. Lisa, how are you doing? Hi, doing well. How are you? I am doing quite well. So yeah. you brought this movie, um, and so I'm curious, your background with it what had you read the book were you familiar with it at all what what sort of history do you have at all with the outsiders i don't have a big history with it i'll say that it keeps popping up like on different lists and i keep seeing like the cover of it and it's one of those movies that i've just always wanted to see but i never got around to seeing gotcha okay um were you at all familiar with it being a novel uh you know prior to Um, being a book yeah, I think I was, but I've never read the novel. Okay. I just know that there is one. So I actually, it was part of our curriculum in um, junior high. I think I read it in, I want to say it was seventh grade um, is when Got I read it. this book. And I, I distinctly remember this book in school because my teacher framed it as though it was set in the 1950s. And huh. I immediately um, argued with her about that because there were Mustangs <laughs> in the book. And I'm like, that can't be in the 50s. The Mustang didn't exist until 1964. That's um, too funny. <laughs> so it's definitely set in the 60s, but it is. A, it, it was a young adult novel. It's one of the first um, that's sort of categorized as a YA novel. Um, really? Okay. Written by S.E. Hinton. She wrote it while she was still in high school. Uh, which, oh, I didn't even know it was a female author. That's really interesting. Yeah, and and I did not realize the the age she was when she wrote this book. It was uh, she started writing it at sixteen. Wow! Um, and I think it was published when she was either seventeen or eighteen. Wow, that's which, incredible. Yeah, which I just learned like today that that was the case. Um, and went on to publish another, I want to say four or five young adult novels. Um, one of them, mm. another. At least two or three more of them were turned into movies. Um, one was called Tex wow. with Matt Dillon. One is um, another Francis Coppola film, Rumblefish, was a, was okay. an S.E. Hinton novel. And um, there was another, uh, what was the other one? It was like, uh, we. it's a longer title. But anyway, so S.E. Hinton had written a few, um, few young adult novels and... Um, this one just happened to get turned into a film and I remember reading it in, in school and I remember seeing this movie, but it's been a long time. Um, mm. And so for me watching it, it wasn't quite a like, wow, I don't remember any of this. It was more of, I started remembering more as I watched it. <laughs> I see. I and see. like things came back. I'm like, Oh, that's right. I forgot, you know, I forgot this was in the movie or Holy crap. I forgot he was in this. Cause Mm-hmm. We're going to get to this cast is crazy for when it was made. It really is. <laughs> um, but first thing I want to ask then, so what um, what did you think of it as a movie? 
Um, I really liked it. It was shorter than I thought it would be. It's like an hour and 30 minutes, right? It's mm-hmm. not very long. Um, <laughs> it was different than I thought it would be. I think I was thinking it was... I, it's got some heavy subject material, but I feel like the way it's handled, the fact that it's considered... Uh, the, the story it's based on is considered a YA novel makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like there's an optimism in the in the movie that you might not always expect for that subject matter, if that makes sense. And uh, I, I don't know. I just really enjoyed it. The cast really shocked me. I, I don't think I took a serious look at the cover. Otherwise, I would have clearly recognized several people on it. Right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, just overall, just really enjoyed it. Didn't realize it was a Francis Ford Coppola film. Mm-hmm. Um, came out the year I was born. Um Okay. Yeah, just great movie. Yeah, so this cast was large. I mean, 1983, so they're they're filming in like 82, 83. Um, mm-hmm. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola. He also um, did a, a lot of work on the screenplay, but oh, really? wasn't, wasn't able to take a writer's credit for it. Um, mm. The story that I read anyway was he basically came in, took the, the screenplay that was there, kind of tossed it and rewrote it and kept it. I see. It's pretty close to the book. Um, oh. Now, you did mention how it's short uh, at an hour and a half. His original cut was close to two hours. I um, see. Okay. And the studio wanted him to cut it down to because they were worried it would be a little too long at two hours. Mm-hmm. And so he cut it down to the hour and a half. And unfortunately, he had to cut some rather pivotal scenes from the book that some people complained about. And so he ended up putting out in, I think it was 2005, there was a, a new cut. It was called uh, The Outsiders, The Complete Novel. And it added in about 22 minutes um, to the movie. Okay. I have not seen that personally. Um, I've only seen this version. And I honestly can't remember what got cut. Like, I know, I remember watching the movie thinking, wow, they, they cut out that scene. But it's been 30 years since I read the book. So most of my memory now is like what I remember watching this movie more so than, mm. than the book. I forget what parts got cut out, but um, they were, I think they were just more kind of fleshing things out, um, giving us more background on some of these characters because it's the, the greasers themselves are a very important group. And yeah. in an hour and a half long movie, it's kind of hard to really build those long lasting relationships so I think that kind of plays into it. But um, but yeah, this cast, I mean, largely unknown actors. I think the, the most well-known person in this movie in 1983 was probably Leif Garrett. And I'm not sure wow. if you're familiar with him at all. Not really. <laughs> so he was a big pop star <laughs> in the 70s. Um, ah, cool. Okay. And he ends up playing Bob, the, uh, the Soch, the head Soch. So he was probably... Oh, okay. Yeah, he was like the most well-known face and name wow. in this movie in 1983. That that right there should kind of blow your mind because... It, it does, yeah. Like, then you look at this, you got Patrick Swayze, mm-hmm. uh, Matt Dillon, Emilio Estevez, Tom Cruise is in it for like a minute. Um, and this was, I think, 83. If I remember right, he was doing, was All the Right Moves that year, and I think Risky Business too. Wow. So he was busy. Um, and they were all young too. In fact, mm-hmm. Patrick Swayze was about 29 when they made this. 
Wow, he looks significantly older than the rest of the cast. Like mm-hmm. you can tell he's he's supposed to be older, but that's still very young. Yeah, and now his character is supposed to be around 20, 21. Um, yeah, he looks a little too old to be 20 or 21, Yeah, <laughs> if um, I'm honest. Like he just looks like a man, and the rest <laughs> of them kind of look like boys. And know? that's that's because they were. They were all in their teens, yeah. except for Ralph Macchio. Ralph Macchio was 20 when they made this, but he just, he's oh, got that baby he says, face. He's got a baby face, yeah. I would, I would say so. You know, it's two years before Karate Kid, so he's not Ralph Macchio yet. He's just like crazy, and he's twenty. See, Thomas Howell was fifteen, I think, playing a fourteen-year-old. But he like, looks, he looks extremely young. Yes, there's some cringy moments with that, by the way. But I'm sure we'll talk about it, <laughs> oh, like sure. in, in today's world. <laughs> mm-hmm. But even like Matt Dillon was eighteen. Um, Rob Lowe, this was his first movie. He was around uh, seventeen, eighteen. Emilio Estevez was bit, young. Yeah, Rob Lowe's a bit ageless. Kind of, you know? yeah. He's kind of ageless, so um, he looks young for sure. And uh, but yeah, it was just amazing. Diane Lane was also, I think, eighteen at the time. Oh, she this. looks beautiful. And or again, just, just baby face. Like, I yeah, I think of Diane. So we always do. You have those weird associations with certain actors where you you put them in a movie. And people are like, you remember them from that? Like, it doesn't make any sense to other people? Okay. (laughs) Yes. So for me, it's Diane Lane. And it's a movie that most people don't even know exists. Murder at 1600. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It was a Wesley Snipes, like, action thriller from the mid-90s. But for some reason, when I see Diane Lane, that's like the first movie that pops into my head. And it doesn't make any sense at all why it should. Because (laughs) that movie was... Not great, but I I liked it. Um, but yeah, this this cast and it's it was Francis Coppola putting it together, and I guess casting wise was kind of crazy because he didn't do sort of these individual casting sit downs. He would do mm-hmm. read throughs with the group. Oh wow! And then he would mix it up, and he would have like, all right, Tom, you play this character now, and you do this one, and they'd, they'd mix up the characters, and he would just do that, and then figure out who he wanted for each character from that. It's kind of a cool process. I, I, I like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> this, the story from Matt Dillon was that he did his audition and Coppola told him, okay, you can go home. And he thought he didn't get the, wow. the role. And it was Francis Coppola was like, no, no, no. I, you're already cast. Like, you're perfect. You, you don't have to do anymore. Nice. <laughs> so, and, <laughs> and I'll tell you what, Matt Dillon's really good in this. He is really good in this. I agree. He's not like an actor that I think of like, wow, the acting chops on Matt Dillon, but he's really good in this. <laughs> he comes across very natural in mm-hmm. that role that he is playing of just sort of that like the kid that grew up in a broken home and he just mm-hmm. fends for himself and he's only he's only thinking about himself, but there is a sensitivity to him, which is Again, it's sort of the thing that gets lost a little bit in a movie where it can feel forced because you got to go through these these steps that I yeah, feel like. I, yeah. Yeah. I feel like in the book, when you're reading the book, it's sort of you have more time to, to sit with it and get to those points a little longer. Right. Go ahead. He does come across a little bit one dimensional at times, but you can tell that there is supposed to be more there and you don't really see that in him until there's some stuff with Johnny towards the end of the film. 
Yeah. And then you're like, oh, okay, he's complicated. Because up until then, you kind of write him off a little bit. But you get a little bit of an insider look at his worldview. Yeah, he's like emotionally stunted, immature, mm-hmm. um, compared to everyone else. But, yeah. But what I do like is that towards the end of things, he's got the self-awareness to sort of... Like, he sees him. he sees a lot of himself in Johnny. And... yeah. Johnny coming from because we never get to see Johnny's parents, but they it's not a good situation for him at home. Um, right, we know that they that that it's domestic violence or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and I feel like like Dallas really take wants to take Johnny under his wing, but he doesn't know how to do it other than to be a tough guy. Mm-hmm. So I I just I I very much enjoy it. and I, and I think that Matt Dillon gave that the vulnerability in those couple of like when he's driving with Pony Boy in the car towards the end. And he's starting to break down as they're driving yeah. to the hospital. That's where you start to see it. And that's where I think I really liked Matt Dillon's performance, being able to do that and then so naturally and effortlessly be this greaser, tough guy, kid, punk that just doesn't care about anybody and kind of puts that on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but they know he's the one to go to when they're in trouble, too. That says a lot about the character that right the two of them immediately go to him and find him at that party and he just like flips flips right away and helps him out while he's at yeah. that party yeah they see a side to him that is harder for people on the outside to see mm-hmm. which which was a big part of uh writing this book for se hinton she wanted to give um because uh, the book was published in 1967 i was gonna ask you that yeah i want to say 67 68 and it was a lot of it was she wanted to write this to give a better perspective of and she wrote it from their point of view because this was so it's set in Oklahoma and mm-hmm. it never never explicitly says that I don't think in the movie I don't know did you get that kind of feel or you know I watched this and my my husband had seen the movie before and he had read the book and he asked me that he was like it, does it take place in o- Oklahoma and I was like I'm not sure but then when you read the description of it it explicitly says Oklahoma mm-hmm. um but I don't know if they I mean they they there's made mention of like Johnny possibly you know like they to throw people off the scent they say he went to Texas so I kind of assumed it had to be close to Texas That's a good point um, yeah but there's so many things I thought about watching this movie. I didn't know that though. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I just, I like that. Um, the idea was to just give this sort of insight into these outsider kids, these kids from the other side of the tracks. Like they're not inherently bad kids. They're no. just rougher situations. I mean, you got the brothers, um, Daryl, Soda Pop, and Pony Boy, which those are great names. I'm sorry. Soda Pop Amazing. and Pony Boy are awesome. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they, they lost their parents. And here's Daryl. And Patrick Swayze is another one who is just really good in this for the mm-hmm. for the limited time he has. But he he has to balance this. Like, now he's got to be dad to his two little brothers while also still being a 20-year-old kid himself. Yeah, but he's so concerned. It, it is because he's so concerned that something's going to happen to them, and they're going to end up in a boys' home, and he can't do anything about it. Yeah, there's something really interesting to me about this movie being really a, a lot about, I think, like masculinity about men, 
and it being written from the perspective of a female author, Mm -hmm. it's almost like she has more permission to explore their emotions than sometimes I think even male authors talk about male characters. And I don't know why. Well, I mean, I guess in our society, it's kind of hard for men to express their emotions. And I feel like that's a lot what this movie's about, about how these guys, just these boys can't really thrive and get the help that they really need. And they're kind of just ostracized by society, but they have a full range of emotions. Maybe they don't get to show people. Uh, It's very empathetic and kind. It is. And you have like a simple thing, like having pony boy read poetry and know who Robert Frost is and recite a poem like that while they're watching a sunrise or a sunset. And then you got the flip side of that, which is Johnny, who's like, he he's just fascinated by all this. That I found myself getting choked up at the end when when it's Johnny's letter to Pony Boy that he yeah, finds inside the me book, too. because he just he realizes that his life has been not a waste, but he doesn't see a way out of it, and yeah. he just wants so much more for his friend who he does see some light in and it just, oh, it, it really got to me. Um, especially this time around, I don't, maybe I'm just getting more kind of in touch with my emotions as I get older and sort of, it becomes, I think we all do. I do. And I think it becomes more, it's become over time more acceptable socially. And I hate saying that because it should have always been, but for it's been so long where it's been hammered into men uh especially young boys that you have to be stoic and you have to hold that down and you're not supposed to be emotional that i do remember this book being a thing when i read it like oh you can't like it's it's okay to to do that and people do have all these different multifacets to them so yeah i think it also highlights the ways in which it, it does feel like men especially in the 60s and even like you're saying to a certain extent now are not allowed to explore their emotions and how that can lead to violence because Mm -hmm. I feel like violence and anger that's like the one thing that men are like sort of allowed to display and so of course that's what's going to come out I mean these boys are in really difficult situations we already talked about and they can't express them and they don't have any you know mentors that are you know, healthy, you know, they, they have Matt Dillon's character, but as we establish, like he's got a lot going on himself. And mm-hmm. so it, it kind of does lead to, to this violence. And so from the outside, you're like, oh, these, you know, these kids are like, they're worthless and they're violent punks. But, you know, the author is saying no, like that they're complicated and they're real people. You know, it kind of makes us look at that in real life, like people that commit these acts are complicated because people are complicated. Yeah. And I mean, even, even Matt Dillon's character of Dallas all of his anger and his violence is born out of fear. And that's the thing that you you start to realize towards the end of the movie is he's just afraid of so much and afraid of what could happen to him. But the only way he knows how to deal with that is through anger and violence because that's what he's gotten from his dad. Right, right. And he doesn't have a, a healthy outlet and none of them do. And that's why they end up having a big rumble. Yeah, yeah. You know? And it, it does say a th- it does say a lot that they had that rumble and it was agreed with both groups. They're going to show up and they're going to fight this out with fists only. Like nobody's going to bring weapons. Yeah. They're just going to have this rumble and that's going to be, quote unquote, the end of it, even though 
It's not. And one of the things that I do wish the movie had more time to go over that I do remember from the book is in the scene where Pony and uh, Two-Bit are walking along and they see the car go by a couple times and then mm-hmm. the, the guys drive up and the one guy's like, hey, I want to talk to you. And they, him and Pony go off and talk. Mm-hmm. That was very important in the book where like this was a, a kid from that side of the tracks that sort of understood like nothing's going to change. We're going to have this yeah. fight and you're still going to be greasers and we're still going to be socias and we're still going to be the rich kids and, and nothing will change. And there was more of that in the book that sort of this idea that not that just like the greasers weren't all delinquents that just were irredeemable. Not all of the rich kids were Bob. Yeah. They were they were yeah. good. There were good kids on that side too, or at least kids that understood. They sort of tried to do that with with Cherry as well, Diane Lane's character, but mm-hmm. it kind of again, it just sort of got cut for time. Like they they really s- trimmed things down, which you know, it loses a little bit of sting, I think, without that, but it's still there's still a lot to be said from this yeah. story. Well, I think there's like a to me a stereotype about women being attracted to quote unquote bad boys, you know, that we get a lot in media. And mm. I feel like this movie does a pretty good job of explaining why she would be attracted to these kids, you know, or kids her own age that are from the quote unquote wrong side of the tracks. She's not, ex- she's not attracted to the, to the bad. Mm-hmm. She's attracted to the humanity in them. Yeah. And she recognizes that they're going through a lot, especially with pony boy. She sees him as someone who's who's, you know, young, innocent, not there yet, and, you know, could turn to the dark side, and she kind of wants to stop that from happening. But yeah. there's not a whole lot she can do. But it, I think it, it it displays, it makes sense it was a female author to me in some ways, because I feel like, yeah, that, like, better explains what girls would like, and not just like, oh, we like that they're wearing a leather jacket, and that they're beating people up. It's like, no, she's, you know, that's not what she's seeing in him. Yeah. Or any of these kids. Yeah, there's even the the line she has where she says, hey, make sure your friend Dally stays away from me. You know, I don't want to see him again because I might fall in love with him. Like, yeah, <laughs> there's that moment, which from from the outside perspective can feel like it doesn't make any sense. But when you kind of dive into it and you think about it, no, it does. Given how she feels about Bob and Bob outwardly mm-hmm. is a, a dick. But yeah, she knows that like there's like you said, there's just more to these guys than yeah. sometimes what they put out there. The Bob thing is a little disturbing just because, I don't know, that Bob guy's terrible. <laughs> She's he like, is. oh, he, he's he got he's got great points, and that, that definitely feels like a uh, a stereotype of like, oh, I can change him. <laughs> but, um, but you're right. That makes sense that she would feel that way because she's already dating a guy that's uh, got some stuff going on. Yeah, and to an extent, it also kind of makes sense for somebody of high school age to feel like that because you do. Oh yeah. Like in at that age, you do feel like you can make so much more of a difference in, to someone, and you can help to change someone. And it's that's true. There is a more like you do get. I know you get a little more cynical sometimes as you get older, but it's it's. I feel like it's less cynicism and more of just a realization that like. People will change when they want to, and you can help yes. to facilitate that, but you can't ever force it. You can't make someone change. Yeah, yeah, that that that's a really good way of putting it. I think you're right. It's like we we lose some of that, I guess, naiveness, but it's not just that. It's that 
we realize, like you said, we don't have the power to completely change someone. You can mm. have a positive impact, but you shouldn't set your sights on like, I'm going to be with this person and I'm going to be able to change that. Like, yeah, not a good idea. No, <laughs> there's, that... there's a difference between like seeing past someone's faults and uh, blatantly ignoring red flags. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And I feel like Bob is a lot of red flags. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's a and... lot. Uh, and it makes it, it's perfect casting then to have Leaf Garrett play him because mm-hmm. he's the pop star. And apparently, um, the story goes that most of the other the rest of the cast didn't get along that well with him. Um, hmm. Which interesting. He did kind of go through that sort of child actor, child music star arc of mm. having some troubles as he got older and being oh. a little bit of a of a pain. As, as, as I remember, he was a little before my time, but like I remember reading about that and seeing stuff in like some of the old, like I love the 70s type shows. Mm-hmm. And they would talk, so I can see why he would kind of butt heads with, especially this group of guys who are all the same age and younger than him. And yeah. Coppola is a director that does like to mess with his actors a little bit sometimes. Mm. And so one of the things I read was that he they were all staying in a hotel. They were shooting for three months, I think. And they were staying in a hotel and he put all of the actors that were playing the greasers on like the ground floor. And he would put all of the Soch actors in upper floors with nicer rooms and sort of create a divide between them. Interesting. And then, and while also like kind of letting them all, you know, um, congregate and, and hang out together. And so it's sort of created his gangs too. Um, which did lead to some funny, some, I, I love crazy trivia. Like, uh, apparently the hotel had a fountain and interesting. <laughs> so after they shot the fountain scene in the movie, the, the mm-hmm. actors were all messing around and they were like recreating it in the fountain at the hotel. And <laughs> within like two weeks they had removed the fountain. They got it out of there cause it was too much trouble. And supposedly a few years later, Tom Cruise came back for a different film or he met somebody that said they worked at that hotel and his first thing, his first words to them were, I'm sorry, because they just, they, <laughs> the kids partied a lot, I guess, which look, if you put a half dozen 18 to 22 year old guys together in a hotel and they, they don't have parent supervision, they're going to, you know, things are going to happen. There's no yeah. way around that. They're going to be, I've been on too many, uh, high school athletic and college athletic trips and guys are going to be messing with each other and pulling pranks on one another. And that doesn't change. And it doesn't change as you get older either. Really? <laughs> I have found that out. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's this great collection of actors and, and it, for me, it's a movie that I feel like could use. It's very it's very set in its time. It's very much the 1960s, and that does create uh, the real easy divide of the greasers and the socias. That's fine. I kind of want to see sort of an updated version of the same story, the same themes, but update it for a different era and a little different kind of socioeconomic breakdown because yeah. it does, you know, because it's Oklahoma in the 1960s, it does end up being very much a, an all white cast. And there's one, I was just about to say that like the term (laughs) greaser is defined in this movie and it's actually not what it actually means. Like they talk about, Oh, it's cause they have greasy hair when really it's 
was specifically like Latino or Italian Americans, and they were called greasers because of the occupation they had, mm-hmm. not because of um, not because of their hair necessarily. So that that was kind of interesting. Um, but in this movie, it's like, and maybe even in the book, it's like they get a little bit you know, cast as, uh, I guess, Caucasian Americans. And that's the iconography of greasers to us now, like with the movie Grease and stuff like that, is not that they're Italian or Latino. Right. Um, Although... So that's kind of interesting. It was... I, I, I did... I do believe S.E. Hinton pulled from experience at her high school. Mm. And so... And, and it was like in Oklahoma. Yeah. So. Kind yeah. of the... Where where it was located, I think, would alter a little bit of sort of because you're right. Like it, I remember reading about and hearing about you know greasers were much more the Latino, the Irish, or the Irish, the Italian. Yeah, and it was it. So you're right. Like our iconography of it doesn't really make sense because all we think of but, is is Greece. That's the the first yeah. thing you think of, which is oh, for c- sure close but not right, and like. Yeah. That it was something that I know when I was younger, it didn't dawn on me the how white the cast was or any of that because I I am a uh, a white male. So for me, all I'm seeing is a bunch of guys that look a lot like I did in high school, um, in junior high. And as like watching it this time, it it dawned like it it was a lot more stark of like wow, this really needs some more like just differences and. I feel like, again, if it's not Oklahoma in the 1960s, you can change that setting and you're going to get more uh, inclusivity and just more diversity in the people that are going to be in those high schools. Yeah. Although I felt like with Johnny Cade, they were sort of subtly implying like he was closer looking wise. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, he he was like the Tanner kid. I, I mean, it was still kind of the same thing. I felt like they were sort of implying with him a little bit. He was as close to like a diverse casting choice as you would get, but yeah, you're right. You could you could redo this movie, and they don't have to be called greasers and socias. They could be called something else, but there's still like a divide, you know, that you could kind of play off of, and um, it would just be with like depending on what part of the country it's in or what time period, um, just different people. Yeah. Because there's a um, West Side Story is a very similar yeah. uh, thing, and sort of Romeo and Juliet. If you go back even further, mm-hmm. is a similar thing where you've got different houses. There's always it's very easy to write um, to start with the theme of like the the socioeconomic divide and the different groups and the the them mm-hmm. the us and the thems and yeah and youth I, subcultures like you know mm-hmm. continue and. Are interesting. Um, one one thought I had watching this movie is it's funny that like when you watch something like this, like okay, the greasers are they're styled a very specific way that has to do with you know their like you said economic status, right? The leather jackets, the hoodies and t-shirts versus like the socias wear like a more preppy style. But what's really interesting to me is that one style you would still wear today and the other one you would not and it's not <laughs> yeah. the socias right like when we think of cool we still think of leather jackets and t-shirts and converse yep we don't think of like the way the socias were dressed and I, I think that's what's always been interesting about subcultures is that like when they come out they stand out um as you know looking different othered and then as time wears on they become what like everyone wants to look like and 
you know, me and my husband were talking about it. And he said, well, maybe it's because in these movies, you know, those characters are often portrayed as like the heroes, like the underdog character is portrayed as a hero. And I'm like, that's true. But I would also say like, it happens with different cultures. Like I, I think like with, you could take um, black American culture and the way that, you know, with like uh, tennis shoes and hoodies and all and clothes like that. Like at one point that was something they owned. Mm -hmm. And then as time went on, it's like, it's been sort of stolen and borrowed from them and become mainstream. Absolutely. Um, But that seems to happen a lot with like subcultures or minority groups. It's like people see what they're doing and then they're like, at first they're sort of, it's seen as like outcast and then over time it becomes like cool, but it's never like what everyone's doing becomes cool. Right. Like that's like almost like the, the conformity of that is like lame. <laughs> yeah. Episode, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Because at some point something can become too popular and then nobody wants that anymore. Even though yeah. that's the, it's the old Yogi Berra study saying of like, nobody goes to that restaurant anymore because it's too popular. Mm-hmm. Like nobody wears that anymore because it's too popular, but yet, it's it's worn a lot. It's just that then the 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 subculture will then pivot and move on to something new. Yeah. And and there is that fine line between kind of being inspired by or doing some sort of an homage to something that you've seen and then kind of appropriating it too. And that's always yeah. a weird thing to go about because like I I can certainly see both sides of that argument and it and intentions can can mean a lot, but you can also unintentionally kind of appropriate something that has a different meaning than what you think it does. Yeah. It's like when you take on the outfit in this case of like a subculture, it becomes almost costumey. Um, Mm -hmm. So you have to be really careful. Like, are you authentically portraying that? Or like you said, are you just wearing it as a costume? Um, You know, for these greasers, like their attire, their hair, it's part of who they are. Um, yeah, it's defining. And over time, it's yeah. And that was that was why it was such a big deal for Pony Boy to cut his hair and then blonde go blonde with it, bleach his hair yeah. too. Like, and they keep talking about. <coughs> pardon me. They they mentioned a few times in it. They use the word tough, and you hear them say like, "Oh, it's tough hair. That's a tough car." And yeah. that is something I distinctly remember from the book. Is there was tough and there was tough, and they would in the book it would it was spelled two different ways. You would get tough like T-O-U-G-H the way it's supposed to be. And then there was a tough T-U-F-F and it was a different, you you used a different intonation when you said it. And one was like, you know, a tough car would or, or a tough look would be Pony Boy at the beginning of the movie where he's out and he's got no sleeves and, you know, wearing jeans and his uh, either boots or in his case, the converse and his slicked hair. And that was tough and that was the good kind of tough. But then they would make fun of like owning a Mustang. That was a tough car. That was sort of the greasers looked at that as like wannabe type of culture type of situation. Yeah, because it's like they have the money Mm -hmm. to buy it. It's like they're trying to commodify and buy their culture. Yes. And to them, it's like you can't do that. You have to like be this person. If you shortcut it and you just buy an expensive car, well, I mean – Sure, mm-hmm. you can buy that, but you don't embody who we are. Exactly. And so that was that's something I feel like gets a little lost in the adaptation because it's harder to do when you just hear the words versus reading it out. Um, but I think that they, they did as well as they could to sort of give that idea with the, like when Johnny would say it, the way he would say yeah. it. Yeah. 
Um, no, that's a really interesting. Thank you for telling me about that. Like I said, I haven't read the book, but I was actually talking about this weekend with some friends and they were like, you haven't read it. It's so good. And I was like, okay, I got to read this now. But um, that's, <laughs> that's really interesting. And you're right. Sometimes things just get lost in translation when you make a movie. It's, it's a different medium. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, even little things like there's the throwaway line right before the rumble where, um, they mentioned like, why does Derry like to fight? And I can't remember. I think it's soda pop says like, Oh, he just likes to fight so he can show off his muscles. But it was like <laughs> in the book, it was a point to be made that when there was a fight to be had that Daryl was going to get involved in, he wore, he specifically wore a black t-shirt that was too small so that he would look, look even bigger. bigger and more intimidating. Whereas oh. his normal day to day, he was wearing his work clothes. He just looked like a regular guy, but when he was going to tussle, He'd make sure to put on that black T-shirt. That thing was a half, you know, a size too small. And and, and Daryl was played by which actor? That again? was Patrick Swayze. Okay, I was going to say, I thought he just dressed that way to be extra cute. <laughs> <laughs> which, I mean, it worked. Again, female perspective. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Um, no, that's really, that's really interesting. I, I find, for whatever reason, I'm just going to out myself here. I'm very much drawn to these type of stories. Like I, um, you know, like we were watching this and my husband was like, did this come out before or after the warriors? And I was like, definitely the warriors was before, mm-hmm. but that's one of my favorite films. And there's just something about this kind of story that like always grabs me. I don't know. I feel like e- even when you take this to like, uh, I guess like an older version of it, like I've always liked, like mobster movies or, you know, movies that have some sort of gang element to them. I don't know. I've always been interested in these stories. I'm always intrigued by it because of things like um, the family dynamics that go on, because there's a lot of, this is a found family. These are, this group of greasers are brothers, even though three of them are. Maybe that's what it is for me since I'm like an only child. (laughs) that could be. <laughs> Maybe I'm that, drawn to these kind of found family stories because I identify with that a lot. Yeah. I mean, I definitely do um, in a lot of ways as well. Um, and it, it, it is interesting and intriguing to me because of like family. Family is so much more than just blood relation. Yeah. And agreed. to see the different, like you see, you know, Daryl and Soda Pop and Pony Boy are blood related and they're very close. Yeah. And again, the book gives you more of that because there's like, there's a couple of extra scenes where they argue some more where Daryl comes across as being very just like cranky towards pony boy in a way that pony boy doesn't understand because he's just too young to, to like fully grasp what's going on. Oh, for sure. He's like, he hates me. And you're like, that's not it. (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time, he's 14 and his older brother treats him like that. I totally get it. Like I completely understand that. And then you got Soda Pop in the middle of it because there's a scene that was cut that is in the extended version of this movie where they argue and Soda Pop just takes off and runs out the door and they got to go chase him down and like bring him back. And they sort of have a group hug moment of like, look, we're going to we're going to stop fighting so much like we need to stick together. Mm-hmm. And then to have like there it's known that their house is a place they can go. I mean, Tom Cruise's character just shows up and starts eating chocolate cake that they had laying around. And like. <laughs> You know, it, it, there, it, this, just the family aspects of all of that, even something as simple as Johnny doesn't want to go home and, and Pony Boy's like, look, he doesn't, he doesn't out and out say like, you need to come to my house when he's sleeping in the empty lot. But he's like, if you get cold, come on over. 
Like, you know, you can always come over to our house. I feel so bad for them in that house. Like you can tell that the house needs a lot of repairs and isn't being kept up with. It's because, you know, it's a bunch of kids living in it that don't know what they're doing. Right. It's sad. Even, even when, you know, one of them's job is as a roofer. Like he yeah. just, he doesn't know how to do the rest of the upkeep in the house. He doesn't have time for it. And they, he's too busy worrying about making sure that stuff gets paid. So it's, it's rough, but like, it just, there, there is, there's some cool family stuff going on to that. Um, oh, for sure. And even, you know, just the way like two bit Emilio Estevez's character can just joke around with everybody. He's the, the brother, the, the cousin that's like the class clown. Oh man, Emilio Estevez. I was like, gosh, he's so young in this. It's crazy. They're just all babies. Like it's amazing how young they all look and, and how some of them didn't age for like 30 years. For, for real. Like Tom Cruise (laughs) and Rob Lowe specifically. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, and, uh, pardon me. Um, yeah. Emilio Estevez is two bit is a ton of fun. I, I remember his character in the book. Um, being a lot of fun too, cause he's always cracking wise, but he, same thing. Like as soon as it, when, whenever anything goes down, they have each other's back. Like yeah. as tough as, as tough and, and harsh as Daryl or as Dallas could be Matt Dillon. As soon as, uh, you know, things went pear shaped on him, he was like, all right, here you go. I'll take care of you. Go do this. I'll find you in a couple of days. Yeah, and, and there's also that interesting detail that, like, he was at that house party, but he, he's like, I was sleeping. Like, I just think, again, they're kind of showing different sides to him that mm-hmm. it's like he's in this really hectic, chaotic world, but, like, he was actually just sleeping. You know, he wasn't even really partying. Yeah. Um, did you recognize who opened the door at that house, by the way? Was that Tom Waits? That was Tom Waits. Okay. I was like, I know Tom Waits was in the movie and I felt like it was a blink and you miss it. And I definitely missed it. But the way you set that up, I was like, that must've been him. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That was Tom Waits. Um, William Smith was the store clerk in, um, in the store that Dallas knocks oh. over at the end. That was William mm-hmm. Smith. And I also noticed the, the guy and <clears throat> I had to do a double take when, um, when they first pull up to the church, why those kids were in the church. I'm not sure. The, the abandoned church that they had been staying Thank in. Thank like, you. <laughs> and those adults did nothing. Those adults like, were worthless. Those adults were like, oh, well, they're burning. It's a thing. They're not my children. I'm fine with that. <laughs> it, it it takes two little boys to run into a building on fire. Although it was on fire because they left all those cigarettes in there, right? Yes. I'm pretty sure so that's what's supposed to happen. Uh, they're heroes, but they did cause this fire. <laughs> <laughs> it was a detail I noticed, but yeah. But yeah, it yeah, was. I was very confused. <laughs> why? Why were they at a field trip to an abandoned church? I don't know. But um, the the guy that was with them um, was played by Gaylord Sartain, and okay. he is uh, he was on Hee Haw for a very long time, playing a lot of different characters, and and I just mm. recently covered that on a different show. And he's also he was in a few of the early Ernest movies. Um, oh, okay. I probably and saw him then. He's a very funny actor. And in this, he does not play that. Like he plays completely against type. So it took yeah. me a minute to realize it was him. Um, and his character in the book is more, uh, he's in it a little bit longer, but he's more sort of like from the country and doesn't really understand the greases versus Sosha's sort of dynamic because mm-hmm. he's just out in the country where they don't, 
they're not dealing with that because it's not the city. Um, right. Whereas in here, he sort of understood it and he kind of leans one way or the other. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just, I thought that was hilarious. That was Gaylord Sartain. Uh, my friend Stephen <laughs> is going to love that. Stephen, uh, Stephen Adams from Horseshoes and Hand Grenades loves Gaylord Sartain so much. Oh, nice. Nice. So, um, I was, I was going to say too, that was interesting when, um, oh man, I lost my train of thought there. Um, <laughs> that always happens time. to me doing this. Um, well, I thought, yeah, we, we mentioned that he didn't save, he didn't help save those children and we don't know why they were there, but, oh, I, I remembered, uh, he makes a comment about, um, one of the kids smoking. Yeah. He's like, you're smoking. And he's like, I'm an adult. Um, I've been smoking longer than you. And I'm just thinking, man, none of y'all should be smoking. Right. right. <laughs> like, what a different world we live in now. It is a very different world we live in. And I think that would be kind of a, an interesting update to this is what would be, because it's definitely the Maybe. greasers that all smoke. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Yeah. But it's like the that's that's some of the stuff that defined the greasers was a they you know the greasy hair the slick back hair the look the leather jackets jeans, but also they all smoked, they all smoked all the time and a lot of the socias didn't. That wasn't really a thing that they did. Um, well, it's kind of seen as, you know, not classy, mm -hmm. like in a way that like for a long time like you know people would drink but like women didn't drink because it's not you know, ladylike in air quotes, like True. there is sort of like a class element to smoking and drinking. Absolutely. I'm, I'm just curious if you were to update this to, let's say within the last five to 10 years, you said it like, what would be some of those defining characteristics? I'm not sure because yeah, I think I I'm now, too old to know. Yeah. I'm now an old person that I don't, I don't get it. Um, but I'd be very interested to see what some of those were. Um, yeah. And see how it gets played out and sort of where the class divide would be. How would, because I don't know that it would be as clear cut as yeah. we see now um, in this movie. So it's interesting to me. I also think that the movie would benefit from a few more uh, women characters in general, because we really just have Cherry, like her friend That's at the beginning. That's true. But... Although I do think this is one story where I'm okay with that because I feel like it's so much about like male emotions, male issues. I think that's also part of why there are no yeah. women. Almost like the lack of a female presence is part of the problem. Um, so in, in some true. ways I'm like comfortable with that. Yeah. And I know uh, in the book I'm remembering that one of the things going on with Soda Pop was that his girlfriend had just broken up with him because she cheated on him, got pregnant, and moved to Florida, like which obviously oh, would be a huge, a... like that's a huge thing in the 1960s. <laughs> yeah, and... no kidding, and a big blow for sure. <laughs> yeah, in in any in any time period, but yeah, I, I felt like that was part of the problem, right? It's kind of like if you did a story about absentee fathers, like there's no mothers really in this movie, mm -hmm. and there's no women, and and I also feel like a lot of these types of subcultures are like gangs there aren't a lot of women that's true. like it is kind of more in, like that like you know it's like watching like i don't know like sons of anarchy or something like there's a couple of female characters but it's mostly men but i think it, it would be reason. it could be an interesting way to update keep the same themes but update to a to a current culture too, yeah, to to integrate true. more of yeah. that and 
and I'm sure there's a lot of different things you could do there. Again, a lot of stuff that I'm just not qualified to really talk about, but like, same. <laughs> um, I just, I, I, because it's such a simple plot and again, and this, this book and this movie do what I talk about a lot, which is keep your plot simple. The, the stakes of what's going on and what's happening shouldn't be overly complex. Let the complexity come from your characters and their interactions with each other. Because I think when you do that in a story, the story is instantly more accessible to more people. And mm -hmm. it's easier to follow a simple plot if your characters are complex. It draws you in versus... And I love... Um, uh, Christopher Nolan a lot. Mm -hmm. I love his films, but his his stuff can be dense and difficult to get into because his plots are so intricate and so complex. Now, he yeah. does a really good job of it, and he can be the exception that can prove the rule, but I do think that it on the balance it's a lot easier to put the complexity into the characters than the plot, and that's what this does is it puts all of that into these characters and the way that they interact with each other. And keep the plot very simple. Kid got jumped. One of them defended himself. And now they're trying to sort all that out. Yeah. They're... And I felt like it, it's really justified in my mind. Oh, I like also that the, the real violence in this movie is never shown, really. Mm -hmm. It's implied. I always like when movies do that because I feel like it's brave, too, honestly. Like, it's easy to just show violence. But sometimes when you imply it, it has more impact. And I think, like, Pony sort of like you know he was almost drowned and then he comes to and then he's seeing like the aftermath of what happened and i feel like johnny's pretty justified i mean they were like about to drown him i really oh, yeah. think that i think that the boy that was gonna drown him was just i don't think he would have normally done that but i think he was just so drunk mm -hmm. and so angry that like he was going to do that and obviously no one was gonna stop him um so I think they, they do a good job of setting up that, that piece of it where you're not, I, I don't know. I never really questioned throughout the movie, like, Oh, this kid's a murderer. Like he definitely didn't set out to be right. And is it weird that it feels like a more innocent time for kids to have switchblades than I guns? Mean, kind like, of is crazy yeah. when you think about it. Like, you know, when like sometimes when you think about like West side story or, or whatever, and you see like a little switchblade, you're like, you're just kind of like tee -hee, Like that seems of a time, um, whereas now, if you made this story, I mean, they, they would all have guns because people have people use guns, you know, more yeah. often now. Yeah, which again would add a layer, I think, um, to the storytelling of this, especially if you go to the extent where they have the rumble scene, where again, yeah, here's the, <coughs> pardon me, um, because sort of what I talked about earlier with like the violence and the anger comes from a place of fear. And that's mm -hmm. where I think a lot of people end up wanting to own guns and, and use them is it's not, is it they're, they're afraid. Yeah. And so here's this situation where these two gangs basically came together and said, okay, we're going to do, we're going to have this out, but we're not going to bring weapons at all. It's just yeah. going to be fists. Shows and, at least some maturity for sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, like, I guarantee you, if you were to write this for today's uh, audience, someone is going to bring a weapon to that fight at the end of it. Like that's going to be yeah. the the thing that happens that really, and maybe that's your inciting incident instead of it being the gang, the couple of guys jumping two of them 
and sort of that justified uh, stabbing, the inciting incident becomes during the rumble, somebody brought a weapon and that escalated things and somebody died. And now yeah. you've got to deal with that fallout and sort of all of this kind of stuff. And then you can come at it from both uh, both groups as well. The, the group that yeah. had somebody get killed versus the group like there's a lot of different things that go on there. So it just keeping the plot simplified allows you to bring complexity in, in so many different areas and make it really compelling and make you want to know more. Yeah. I mean, as we're talking about it, I feel like just discussing it, you see so many more layers than when I was just watching it, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like, very and that's so. that's the hallmark of a really good story. Yeah. A good story 100%. brings you in and then you start to peel those layers back and you start to get more and more out of it. And that adds, like, I think if you were to find the novel and read it, it's, again, it's a YA novel, so it's not like it's a dense, heavy read. Um, I think that then you'll get a little bit more and it'll sort of open, unlock a few new things and it'll make you appreciate some of the stuff they did in the movie as well. So, yeah. Um, cause it's a very, it's for me, it's a very good adaptation of the novel of what I remember. So, um, I, I did find a couple of funny little trivia bits that, that nice. always crack me up. Um, when Dallas falls out of his chair, which is a really funny scene where he's sitting where the, cause first of all, they sneak into the drive, the drive-in theater. And I love yeah. the fact that this was a drive-in you find out later has two screens because <laughs> um, they had the east side and the west side and one of them was closed oh. for repairs um but oh, they nice touch yeah so they sneak in and i have never seen a drive-in that has like seats like that yeah i haven't either um so that to me was really interesting but they they get there dallas starts to mess with cherry a little bit and then when he puts his feet up on the chair and he loses his balance and just falls over <laughs> That was a complete accident, and they left it in. And I want to go back and watch the scene because apparently C. Thomas Howell looks at the camera while he's laughing because he just <laughs> – they like, and you see the old couple sitting behind him start to laugh when he falls out of his chair. So that to me was just hilarious. That, that was complete, good, yeah. Complete accident. Also, the hat thing with 2-Bit when they come back to the house. Oh. He's like, hey, I found a new hat, and he puts it on. He's like, I'm going to go home and get rip-roaring drunk and just takes off. That hat was like one of the cameraman's hat. And That's a funny. wind machine blew it off his head and it, it rolled into frame. And supposedly Coppola told everybody he doesn't want to stop rolling, just run with whatever happens. And so Estevez did and they just left it in the movie. Oh, nice. <laughs> and I love it. Because it feels, it, it very much feels like a thing that character would do. Yeah. And so to leave that in there and let that ad lib happen... I love moments like that in movies, little yeah. little things like that that just add flavor to a character. Yeah, and authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, S.E. Hinton is in the movie, the author. Um, oh wow! Yeah, so when we're in the hospital and they go to Dally's room and she's com- the nurse is complaining about where his gown is. Oh, okay. That was S.E. Hinton, the author of the novel. The lady that he like makes a rude comment to too. Yeah. Where he's like, get out of here, you're making me sick. That, yep. that got a laugh out of me. Yeah. Yep. That was <laughs> that was the author. And she apparently was very involved on set 
and said that she kept in touch with all of them after filming it and sort of was like their mom on set in a lot of ways and kind of just looked after them and stuff because they all and they all looked after each other too um there was also a funny thing where the uh the animosity between diane lane and matt dillon's characters in that first scene was kind of real Mm -hmm. because they had just met and like diane lane went on later to say like yeah, it was sort of just my adolescence and not really understanding what was going on, and I kind of didn't like him at first. <laughs> and so there, like, there was that real tension. But they ended up becoming friends after that, and like, you know, again, sort of protecting each other and all the actors looking after one another. But I just thought that was kind of funny that they they really didn't like each other at first. Um, Gosh, yeah, he comes across as such a jerk in those scenes. <laughs> every I felt like in those scenes specifically, like every girl has experienced some level of that. Yeah. It's like hard to define of like you're so incredibly uncomfortable and angry and it's like I don't know they just nailed that scene really well. Yeah, and that's that authenticity I'm talking about where like yeah. you can fully believe Matt Dillon could be like that at that age. Yeah. Like Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know for for all from all accounts he's just a delightful person but like he he did that so well. And Yeah. Even for me watching it I was just like oh man this is uncomfortable like I it would be it would be tough to be and then on top of that you got Ponyboy and Johnny sitting next to him who are two and three two three four years younger than him yeah and they're watching it like that's why it's a big deal for Johnny to step up and be like hey leave her alone yeah because you just you just don't do that most of the time like that's a there's that hierarchy mm-hmm. within the family yeah um what was the other thing uh. That was kind of it. Oh, um, yeah, that was what it was. S.E. Hinton began writing the novel when she was 15, uh, finished it when she was 16, and it was published when she was 17. It's insane. It's it's pretty impressive to put out a book of that magnitude at that age. And to write, for, for her to write a bunch of young boys as well and as fleshed out as they are. Yeah. Um, Again, I think he coming in with the, from an emotional angle, because I think a lot of times we act like there's such a difference between genders that I, I truly don't think exists in the way we think it does. Like, I feel like a lot of it is socially constructed and that's, you know, a lot of why that's the case. Can I ask like a random question? Absolutely. Go for it. Okay. So pony boy bleaching his hair um, seems like such a huge deal. And you kind of touched on that earlier. Can you talk more about like, why is that such a big deal? So it's again, it's that idea of tough versus tough. And Mm -hmm. that a lot of um, a lot of the greasers had the black slicked back hair and it would be longer um, and you, asso- they associate it. And, and it's funny because in the book, Dallas is actually blonde. He's, he doesn't have the dark oh. hair that Matt Dillon has. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, but you, they, they associated that look of blonde, like shorter blonde hair with the rich preppy kids. And so Interesting. that was, that was a, just a, it wasn't a cool, it wasn't cool to look like that. It wasn't cool to have blonde hair. Then do you think that the outsiders visually 
like in the movie, maybe also from the book, influenced how later it's the opposite. Like I feel like in the 80s and 90s, bleaching your hair became kind of like a alternative statement. I think so, because sort of like that, uh, what we were talking about earlier, where subcultures will constantly be shifting and altering and moving the goalposts and things like that, as that, um, that sort of an idea of the greasers became more mainstream, the counterculture is going to go in another direction. And so suddenly, yeah. you know, it's, it's sort of like uh, punk music got born out of things like Led Zeppelin and prog rock, because mm-hmm. these people, these guys were listening to all of this music become more and more self-indulgent and complex. And then guys are like, no, just three chords and so in a rock and beat and let's go. And you get the Ramones and you get punk music and yeah, whatever's happening in England and all that kind of stuff. And so they go in a completely different direction. And then that, as it becomes more popular and starts to spread, now the counterculture goes in a different direction. And so, yeah, I think there is there is something to that where as it became more popular, that's when bleaching your hair started to be the way to be different. Um, yeah. You know, kind of like uh, in Japan where I read about how like a lot of uh, the the punky culture would embrace more Western looks because it yeah. was something different. And specifically um, things that seemed kind of in the past and like from movies, you know, oh, like yeah. the motorcycle jackets and bleaching their hair and stuff like that. It's like it didn't that doesn't really feel modern to us, but it did to them. You yeah. know, it's interesting. Like the, they're sort of like rockabilly subculture is interesting. And and it's I've always find it interesting, too, how it cycles, how it goes through these yeah. cycles and how it will it will be a counterculture subculture. It will become more mainstream, more known, and then it'll sort of distill itself back down. And so now yeah. it's a it's very much a subculture again. Rockabilly being the perfect perfect one. You still see guys with pompadours greasing their hair, rolling a pack of cigarettes up in their shirt sleeve, like you still see that today. It's just not as prominent as it would have been at that time. Yeah. Um, and because it's very much even more of a subculture, a sub subculture almost. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it is interesting. But, yeah, it's such a big moment in the book and in the movie for him to cut, especially cutting their hair. Like, that was the big thing, was yeah. they had to cut it yeah, shorter. Yeah, hair's a big deal. It's always been a big deal. Oh, yeah? Oh, you yeah. know? It's, it's, it's a defining, culturally significant thing for a lot of people. Because it's such a prominent thing, and it's one of the first things you can see in a person. Yeah. You know, when you see somebody, what do you notice about them? You notice their height or size and you and you look at their face and you see their head and you see their hair and i mean i'm guilty of that i've got my hair bleached right now it's long it's the longest it's ever been in my life it's bleached i had it blue it's going to be blue again because it's just something fun for me to do so yeah i can completely understand why that was such a big deal and i identify it with it more now than i did when i was a kid i will say that that whole scene where he's cutting and bleaching his hair like when I was younger, I was very boring with uh, with that kind of stuff because I was too focused on other parts of my life. Like I was a track and cross-country athlete and I didn't express myself uh, outwardly because I didn't think that, that was what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to be the athlete. Mm. And as I've grown wow. older, I now like my wardrobe is very simple, but it's a lot of expressive shirts and then it's like hair. I've got a hat that I wear all the time, uh, that is kind of just my look, um, that I sort of do now. And 
little dumb things like I wear different colored shoes because I think it's fun. And it's just, it's fun to get the reactions from people like, you're wearing two different colored Converse. I'm like, damn it, again? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's just it's just a fun thing to do. But it took me until I was in my probably mid-30s before I really started embracing just kind of being weird for weird sake because it just is fun. Do you think that the uh, pandemic had anything to do with that? It, I don't think so for me personally, because I'd started sort of doing this before that, but I do think that it, uh, accelerated it some because it gave me, it gave me time to be kind of with myself and just sort of figuring out like, well, what, what do I want? Yeah. I have the almost opposite thing of what you have going on. Whereas when I was a teenager and I was in my early twenties, I was dyeing my hair, you know, I I had like bleach and dark hair. I had a lip ring. I was dressing different enough to where I was getting teased sometimes. Um, And then as an adult, I felt like I had to be like, now I work for a corporate job. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I think I've slowly like sort of been expressing myself um, more and more, like I realized after a while you, you can assimilate so much that you're not authentically being yourself and that's frustrating. Yep. Um, but there's, there's definitely a middle ground where there's like a way that I dress at work and then there's a way I dress at home and I'm more like comfortable with myself, um, than I was a few years ago. And so I think it took a long time to be comfortable with myself. I will say as a teenager and in my early twenties, I don't know that I knew who I was and I was like, I was dressing like I did, but I don't know that I did. And you saying you, you're discovering that now, I think like it does take a long time to discover bar and um, it's just, it's very interesting, but yeah. Yeah, know, and, happy for you that you're doing that. Uh, I could do. I could stand to do more of that myself, to be honest. It's it's one of the, so a while back I did. Uh, I heard a quote. It's from a friend of mine. I have a friend who is he is like uh, very much an adult, right? He's got a big time like executive level job, makes real good money, bunch of kids, all this kind of stuff. Very adult, but he can also turn that off and just be a. a borderline delinquent again like not in a bad way just like (laughs) he can he can play both those roles so well and it was in chatting with him and he's like look here's the thing growing old is inevitable it's gonna happen but growing up is optional and i was like (laughs) very true i am taking that to heart and knowing when to do the different things and when and what sort of where those lines are but how much how much do you assimilate before like you said you start to lose who you are as an individual there there needs to be a balance to that and Mm -hmm. and i think that you know it kind of circles back to what this movie was is like there's a balance to somebody like a pony boy who wants to be this tough kid but he's he's really a sensitive kid at heart you know and he likes to read poetry and that's it's johnny seeing that in him and being like and that's the line stay gold pony boy like stay that Keep that part of you always, no matter what happens, don't lose that, which is a big theme in the book and a big theme of the movie is sort of just keeping who you are, regardless of what's going on around you and don't let it break you down. Don't let it turn you into uh, Dallas or let it, you know, take, take over and hurt you the way that it did to Johnny. Yeah. So, 
Uh, it's, it's really good. I'm glad that you got to watch this movie because. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I've been thinking about watching it for a long time. And um, I was like, when you asked me to be on the show, I was like, okay, well, I need to pick something that I haven't seen that I need to see. And that just came up in my mind. I think because I'm watching a show that's about a gang right now. And okay. so I think that's why I was kind of like drawn to it again. And I, and like, I do think that it's a, it's a really important story and that's where sort of my thought of like having an updated, modernized version of it that has some different diversity to the characters in it to allow mm -hmm. it to be accessible to more people. Because for me growing up, obviously very accessible. Again, I'm seeing half dozen guys that all look like people I went to school with and looked like me. Um, yeah. And I want to see different versions of that so that more people can can sort of can can have this accessible to them in a way that I felt. Um, and that will because the themes in it are very universal. So the wrapping that it that it comes in the packaging that it comes in, I just feel like could be, you know, could be updated. Now, that's not a knock on the novel or S.E. Hinton because rule number one in writing is write what you know. And she wrote what she knew in high school and did a hell of a job with it. So, you know, we're, I think we're all very lucky to have that around. Um, and I'd just like to see maybe an updated version of it. Uh, or at least, if nothing else, just taking those themes and giving us some new... Because um, even if it's, again, if it's not a bunch of uh, white kid greasers, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Let it be, you know, maybe even if you want to keep it with greasers, like you said... Uh, earlier on have it be closer to the sort of that classic true definition of what they were instead of the yeah that would be interesting version. it would just be like a fresh take i'm always interested like you said in kind of not reinventing but like retelling stories under different lenses so that would be that would be pretty cool absolutely well lisa thank you so much for being here this week now you have a show i i very much enjoy your podcast so let people know about that and where they can find it Yes, thank you. Um, I have a podcast called I Love That Movie, and basically you just pick a movie that you love and you come on. Um, you've been on it before and appreciate you on there. And uh, you can pretty much find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search I Love That Movie. And it's it's a lot of fun, and I like that you, you come at it with just like, all right, here's your movie. Why do you like it? What is it about this movie that yeah. you like? And you can dive in, and it's a lot of fun to listen and hear all these different perspectives, like you'll have guests come on, talk about a movie that I love and they bring things that I never thought of with why they like the movie too, which is really cool for me as somebody who just likes to talk about movies. So <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And, uh, I have a list of things that I can talk about. So if you ever need Yay. a guest, you just get a hold of me and I got movies for days that I will yeah, talk about. Yeah. We'd love length. to have you. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here this week. Um, I do record the show Sunday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern time, uh, and uh, I do it live on Twitch, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. You can come hang out in the chat room. Uh, the show goes out as a podcast on Wednesdays, anywhere you get your podcasts, or you can go to tvstravis.com and find this show and anything else that I work on. Um, you can also find links to merchandise and my Patreon there. Um, and next week, I finally have Sean Weiland coming back, and we're going to talk about <laughs> Wing Commander. And uh, I got things to say about this movie because um, <laughs> he brought it up and he wanted to talk about it. And I watched it and hmm, it is. I don't know if you've seen Wing Commander or not. Uh, Freddie Prince Jr., not. Uh, Matthew Lillard based on the video game Wing Commander. It's uh, 
Well, it was made in 1999, I believe, based on a hmm. video game uh, set in space. So you can kind of piece that one together for yourself. It's, uh, well, it's something. You'll just have to... You're like, it's a motion picture. <laughs> it is. There are, there are pictures in motion and there is sound, and that's what I can tell you about it right now. Uh, but definitely, <laughs> I have thoughts on it. You should come back and, uh, and listen to that next week, everybody. Okay. But thank you so much for being here. And um, anytime you want to come back, you're more than welcome. Oh, and uh, until then, just remember to enjoy your movies. And uh, we'll see you next time on Wait You Haven't Seen. into gorilla cookies. <laughs> <laughs>